What's up? You're listening to the Scholarly Spark podcast. Here's your chance to finally become interested in learning and find out what you're genuinely curious about. Join me as we discover the secrets of South Asia and experience different foods, the latest technologies, immerse ourselves in a variety of phenomenal cultures, find out about interesting people we never knew existed, and learn about what no one else dared to find out. I'm Kamal Narayanan, taking you on a journey through the mysteries of South Asia, all from the convenience of your headphones. Here we go. Right. So uh, just to clarify, so you said that Oxford cut down those specific 10 pages because of the word limit, right? Yeah, literally. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, some people probably think that, that there's some kind of academic freedom that, 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 that is declining these days. And it, that may be true. But for most publishers, you know, they, they really don't uh, want monographs more than 250 pages. Uh, oh, there, there are some people who, uh, you know, are, are uh, very popular writers or well-known scholars. Yep. Uh, and, and exceptions, of course, are always made for them because mm-hmm. the books sell. And that right. means they're great writers, you know, as well as great thinkers. Yeah. Uh, but, but uh, you know, for the rank-and-file professorate, uh, it would be, it's, it's very hard to get beyond that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, you just have to have to live with it. Uh, right. And uh, what's interesting is the growth that you experience as a scholar. Mm-hmm. When you realize that you have to praise these things, you know, you, you can't, there's a full, for example, I'm, I'm working on a book now on Annie Besson, yep. who famous nationalist uh, figure uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I started out writing uh just on her activities during World War I, which I look at differently than others who have studied her, and I ended up with uh, 100 pages. Wow. Now, that wasn't going to be the chapter in the book on, uh, on India in World War I, which I was writing it for, for Ian Talbot and Roger Long. And, uh, but Roger and I have, have worked together as editors for a very long time, so I simply uh, said, uh, Roger, I know in, in an hour that you can, uh, you can bring this down to the 45 pages that it became. And uh, he did. I, he sent it back to me. I fixed some transitions that got busted. And there, there it is. And, you know, I read it now. And I'm, I'm very happy w- with what it is. You know, but that's what it is. That's why I'm working on a book. I need to expand on it. But I right. learned so much from the compression. Because the, per- the compression, you have to ask yourself something, which is, who is reading this? Yeah. Are you little digressions that the, the beauty, the beautiful things, you know, as important as you think? So I'll lead right into this. So when I was, uh, when I finished the, the manuscript, yeah. I have wonderful friends in the Salvation Historical Community. Mm-hmm. And one of them, Howard uh, Spodek, has, has a student, uh, had a graduate student who was just getting her first job, um, Michelle Loro, who's in mm-hmm. Salem State. She's a right. very fine world historian, too. But what happened was I said, could you read this? I said, I, I, you know, I told her, I, I actually named the figure. And I'd say, please read this because they want me to cut it down. And I have so many anecdotes because that's why people read things, illustrating the narrative. And I'm afraid I might be wedded to ones that are long, but don't have the impact I think they do. And she went through it and she found like 10 of my favorite ones. <laughs> <laughs> they were the ones I, boy, to me, the, the book is nothing. It's dead to me. 
if I if I take those out. And, yeah. and I looked at them and I said, you're right. Not only do I respect your judgment, uh, you have to, as a matter of fact. And that's something to come back to in terms of world history. A world historian who studies South Asia must, I was talking about having, you know, four, at least four languages. But the problem is a world historian, when you're trying to compare, let's say, colonial policy in Africa to that of Southeast Asia, yep. do you, how many languages? Well, you can't. So what you have to do is be humble and rely on others to help you or right, guide right. Yeah. you to where you need to go. They're not doing their, your work for you, but they're saying, well, you know, a lot of, a lot of Burmese don't look at these uh, anti-nationalist trials the way a lot of Western writers do. And that's your cue. Uh, and you don't go, no, 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 you know. I don't know. That's you know, that's, and you hear uh, some professors do that all the time. They immediately get defensive. And uh, mm -hmm. the defense, world historians can't afford that. The world is too big, and our comprehension, our language skills are not that great, are, are global, and yet we work in a global uh, format. And it's wonderful because you're humble, you're collegial, and if you go to any World History Association meeting, uh, it is warm and friendly, and people are not staring at people's uh, badges to to check out where they are, to see whether you're worth talking to, uh, which, <laughs> which happens at most uh, uh, conventions, to uh, conferences at one point or some, some, some time or another. But with the World History Association, it's never like that because we need, mm. we need every one of us to keep us straight. Yeah, um, yeah. So you, said like, so you like you said that people look at each other's badges just to see if you're worth talking to? Oh yes, I've seen this many times oh my God. Uh, and, uh, at the uh, at the American Historical Association and uh -huh. the Asian Studies Association. Uh, so, uh, a young scholar can make a comment that's very deep, and a, a senior professor will go over to talk to them to say, you know, I really like what you said, and they'll look down at their uh, their uh, tag, and mm -hmm. see that they're you know at a at a small state university, and uh, they won't even ask the question. Wow, really? Oh my That's God. possible. It, it's wow. possible. Every, everyone will say it's at least possible in this universe. Mm. I've seen it many times, uh, but not at World History Association meetings. Uh, yeah. A lot of people, you know, a lot of teachers, getting back to that, a lot of teachers uh, in, the, in the schools, K through 12, have had tremendous experiences. Many of them have advanced degrees, but it's the experience of, uh, that ma makes them aware, I mean, in the field you know, traveling and things like that with their eyes open. Uh, there's always teachers, just like every good professor should be. And the result is they go, you know something, when I was in, you know, like that, and suddenly you go, oh, wow, you know, I missed that entirely yeah. you know, when I was there. And uh, so, again, you, you really need to hear an authentic voice, and world historians need all the help they can get. And not only that, all the criticism they can get, too. Right, right. So yeah, yeah, you you. So clearly, you have an interest in in South Asian uh, studies, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. How did how did that come about? Oh, that that's uh, I, I. It's one of the most wonderful things. I yeah. I went to UCLA. I went to UCLA uh, yeah. because it was it. There are many reasons. One of which I had a terrific job when I started at UCLA. I worked about mm -hmm. thirty hours a week, yep. and and I and I just went to school the rest of the time. And, but what was wonderful was uh, I'd come out of a high school, which was about two miles away from, yeah. the, from, from UCLA. Uh, yeah. So um, my girlfriend and I from high school, 
mm-hmm. are now in college. We're, we're sitting on the uh, quad, the university. And I said, I don't know. You know, I've tried history. I've tried anthropology. And I love the fields, but I don't like the way they're taught. And uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And she says, well, you know, you were really good in history in high school. Uh, you could always go to law school, which she did eventually. And so did eventually the <laughs> woman who became my wife, who was also a graduated from wow. SOAS, uh-huh. School of Oriental and African Studies. So, uh, so she was more than just, right, she just didn't become a lawyer. She had already had a degree, a dense degree. But anyway, uh, so just at that moment, uh, an old high school friend of mine uh, was walking past the quad, and, and I said, hey, are there any good history classes? And he said, yes, there's a history of India class. And, mm-hmm. I, and I said, oh, okay. And I signed up for it. I took it the next semester. And I think it must have been 10 minutes into the actual first uh, substantive lecture. And I realized I was going to study this for the rest of my life. Wow. That there was no, there was no bottom to it. Mm. There was no, there was no silo. So what I learned eventually is in the last line of the book, South Asian World History, and it's, it's a well-known line, I think, uh, amongst uh, historians of South Asia, it's from a great epic, Indian epic, the Mahabharata. There is nothing in this epic that cannot be found elsewhere in the world. Right. There is nothing in the world that cannot be found there. Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah. It's been super fun learning with you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to me. Join me next week as we explore another part of the vast, mysterious lands of South Asia. I'm looking forward to exploring something new that you've never heard about next week. Talk soon.